This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Hello, I'm Roger. That's Rob. A lot to get to in this half hour. A lot of ground to cover. Uh, so why don't we just dive right in, Rob, shall we? And uh, put our guest on the air. This is uh, Brian Mason, the Minister of Infrastructure and Transportation. Uh, Minister, welcome to the program. Good morning. So oh, yeah, why don't we start with Bill 16 then, uh, which was uh, introduced uh, this week. And, and I guess a big part of it is to regulate ride-sharing companies. That's not all it addresses, but but what are you trying to accomplish with Bill 16? There are really two objectives, and, and by far the most important one is to ensure public safety. So we've, we've limited our intervention just strictly to that. Um, we also want to um, uh, uh, provide some somewhat of a, a level playing field between ride-sharing companies and, and uh, the taxi industry. Um, but the, in terms of the safety, we've, we've done three things. We've required proper insurance, we've required uh, a class four uh, license, and we have um, you know, required a, a, a detailed police information check. So what we want to do is make sure when you, when you call a car on your app and uh, someone shows up you've never seen before, that they don't have a criminal record, that they're properly licensed uh, and are, are safe drivers, uh, and that if you do get into an accident, you have adequate insurance. So we've just left it at that. Um, and uh, I, I think that it's probably um, striking the right balance. Okay, but to be more clear, it's not just that they don't have a criminal record. It's also that they're not currently facing a charge. That's correct, yes. Okay. And that's the distinction between what you've outlined in Bill 16 and uh, the the particular background checks that uh, uh, companies like Uber and Lyft uh, have in place. That is correct. Um, well, obviously, I mean, insurance is provincial jurisdiction, I, and I think it's logical that the province play a role in, in uh, having an approved insurance product for this kind of ride-sharing. But beyond that, why, why does the province need to play a role? Why, why can't this be left to municipalities to regulate like they do with the taxi industry? Well, uh, there are only a few cities that actually have a taxi commission or have a, a taxi regulatory bylaw, but um, these these companies operate all over. Um, so I think that there's a good reason for the province to become involved. We've worked closely with both the two, you know, major cities in terms of dealing with dealing with this, and um, uh, I think that um, it, there's a very good reason for us to be involved because we can ensure safety across the province. Okay, but I mean, getting away from the safety question, let's just agree that we've established that having uh, drivers under an umbrella of insurance and having their background checks. Uh, you know, nicely done, all the, the T's crossed, I's dotted, so to speak, is, is fine. Now, now, getting to your point about leveling the playing field, are you not interloping on playing fields uh, where the province typically doesn't belong? No, we've always uh, determined what type of uh, driver's license, for example, is required right. uh, for a, t- a certain type of operation, and we have um, uh, always uh, been directly involved in uh, setting levels of insurance. Um, and uh, certainly to make sure that uh, that these criminal background checks protect the public is also, I think, a matter for for um, the provincial government to be interested in and and have a have a say about. What about fines? There there's some steep fines in this legislation. Yes, fifty up to fifty thousand. Now that doesn't mean that that's going to be automatically imposed. It all depends um, on the circumstances. But um, these are administrative penalties of fifty thousand uh, uh, dollars per offense per day. Um, for the the company or the driver? 
on the co- this is all on the company. Our focus is is very much on the company um, in this legislation. Um, uh, and uh, so they're for, they're responsible for ensuring that the drivers. If I can get back to the, the to, to the criminal uh, uh, check, um, they're responsible for getting that information, keeping it on file, subject to auto, audit by us. So we're very much focusing on the company. This company has very very deep pockets, um, and we don't want our regulation to simply be the cost of doing business. And and that's why it does not mean, however, that um, the fifty thousand dollar administrative penalty would be levied uh, for every offense every time. Brian, have you heard from those companies that uh, have otherwise said they can't do business in, uh, in well, in Calgary, which is where we're broadcasting? Well, the uh, uh, we we did have a meeting. My staff met with, um, with Uber about this legislation. I think they're pretty neutral on it. Uh, they want to talk to us about what regulations might be developed um, afterwards. Um, I don't think that this is uh, so onerous that um, ride-sharing companies can't can't operate. That was never the intention. The intention has always been to ensure the level playing field and an adequate level of protection for the public. Is this legislation an, a made-in-Alberta solution, or does it mirror legislation you studied elsewhere? Well, we thought we were the first one, but we understand that Quebec has just introduced very similar um legislation but there was not well Quebec's uh, legislation requires uber drivers have a taxi license yeah well we're not collaborating with uh, we're not collaborating with uh, Quebec on this so this is this is generated here based on our conversations with people in the ride-sharing industry uh, in the taxi industry with municipalities and so on so we thought you know this kind of this strikes the right balance here to protect the public but not get uh, you know heavily involved in picking winners and losers all right, so this is uh, legislation. Now, this applies to, to commercial operation where, where passengers are being transported. This doesn't apply to, to other uh, commercial drivers, other commercial vehicles. Is that right? Uh, well, it does, it does uh, apply to um, um, uh, taxis uh, in, in uh, most senses. They also have to have uh, proper insurance, um, a criminal checker, uh, record checks as well. Does that uh, criminal record check, by the way, does that change the process? I think you're telling us that taxi drivers were compliant with this legislation prior to it coming into law. Yes. So that do, do, do taxi drivers, uh, were they compliant with every aspect of it, including the safety check? Uh, well, the, uh, you mean the, the criminal... Yeah, the criminal background check, does that change yes. now? Does the, does the, the uh, obligation of taxi drivers, has that changed with this legislation? No, okay. it's, it's, uh, it's not, and that is, that is a requirement of municipal So they were already violence. doing that. You're, you're suggesting this is a, a more of a, yeah. creates a level playing field. Yes, it's the intention. Okay, um, Brian, can you uh, give us some enlightenment about the, uh, the status of the ring road, the southwest portion of the uh, ring road while we're here? Okay. Well, we're going to be issuing um, um, uh, the tender shortly. Um, we've got a very clear focus on getting this uh, road completed as per um, the agreement we've made with the uh, Susina Nation, um, which requires the road to be completed um, uh, in accordance with the agreement within seven years. So that clock started ticking just about three days after I got uh, sworn in as as minister. So our focus has been very much on making sure that that road goes ahead, that it stays on time, um, stays on schedule, and uh, on budget. Okay, and in issuing the tender, that's when the uh, the planning and design phase will begin? I mean, once you've 
how does the issuing a tender work? Well, the tender, we're hoping there, the land has already been, been largely cleared. We've, uh, uh, we've done that, and I'm hoping that we'll actually get uh, underway um, later this fall. I mean, ideally, when would we have this finished by? Six years. We have seven. Well, no, it's, um, we have six left, so five years. Okay. Okay. Um, I don't know if that seems rushed. I've never built a major <laughs> transportation project before. Uh, no, so, Brian, I'm, I'm leading you somewhere here, but I, I just want to know, I mean, is, is there a design that is set right now for that portion of the ring road, or is the design phase yet to happen? The, 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 the various consortia have been working on their uh, design and their engineering work, um, and uh, the successful proponent will be required to formally sign and execute an agreement um, by September the 7th. Um, and then we will announce the successful proponent, um, you know, shortly after. Okay. That. And have you instructed these groups to include a, a public mass transportation uh, uh, component into it? No. That's okay. Not part, so that's not part of it. What, does it make sense to do that? I mean, as you understand, there's the contentious issue of the Southwest uh, uh, bus rapid transit uh, yes. throughway. Uh, and uh, my contention anyway, and I think the contention of many others, is that with uh, the ring road um, being built not too far away, it makes more sense to add uh, a mass transit project to that throughway uh, as opposed to uh, digging up 14th Street and, and affecting traffic in that corridor. What do you say to that? Well, I'm not really familiar with, uh, with the case that you're making. Uh, it's not been something that we've, um, we've heard from the city in terms of their priorities, so we're not proceeding in that uh, direction at the moment. Well, that, that's is that so that's on the city of Calgary to decide well, that? Uh, if if they they're responsible for their transit planning and we're very much committed to supporting both major cities in their uh, in their LRT build out and their mass transit um, approach but it's not something that we've uh, we've received any uh, request from that I'm aware of uh, from the city of Calgary what? okay do you re- do you require one you're, you're funding a part of it well, no, we're not going to proceed with uh, building uh, urban transit in a, in a city without the city's uh, direction. Okay, but I mean, I guess what I'm suggesting is that, that there is uh, provincial government money that will be used to, to build the BRT. So if there's an opportunity for efficiency and savings of, of tax dollars, isn't it incumbent upon the province to step in and go, hey, guys, how about we consider this since there's new information available? Well, you know, I haven't considered the case. This is the first I've ever heard of it, so I'm not really in a position to answer you, your question in any detail. I think you're about to get a flood of emails, sir. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but, but I mean, at the same time, I mean, not yet knowing the design, do, do you believe that that puts the city of Calgary in a bit of a bind when it comes to their own uh, transportation infrastructure? And, no, and the, the, the corridor is wide enough. Um, to accommodate um, uh, expansion in the future. I mean, that's, that I can see mm-hmm. for sure that it is. Now, it depends when this is, uh, when this is off uh, or, or, you know, when this occurs. So um, if you um, aren't going to need something for about 30 years, uh, if you do a net present value analysis, it doesn't make sense to build all the infrastructure uh, at this at this time, if you're not going to be able to utilize it, so you you you, you build it when you need it. Um, otherwise, you've tied up masses of capital uh, uh, to no good purpose. Right. Okay. Now that's a very standard argument for why not make Highway Two between Calgary and Edmonton ten way, ten lanes wide in each direction. 
you simply don't need it. You would spend a whole lot of money doing it. Mm-hmm. But, but in the case of the Southwest Ring Road, I mean, we clearly have that as a priority uh, uh, major transportation project. And, and we've also got in parallel with it and literally in parallel with it. Uh, a bus rapid transit throughway, which makes a lot of sense to a lot of stakeholders uh, in that area to say, why don't you move it to a less congested area where you would have far more efficient public transportation? So, I, you know, with, with respect, Minister, I think the argument that you've just made kind of goes out the window when we look at both uh, projects on balance. Okay. Well, I am looking forward to finding out more about uh, your idea. <laughs> okay. Okay, and and also, can you can you update us at all on on what's happening on on the flood mitigation front? I know there's a, a sure. poll out today. There's a group obviously that that believes McLean Creek would be a better option. That damming Springbank is uh, is not a good option. But but where, where's the province at, and, and what your your pr- approach is here? Well, we've uh, we've uh, determined that the uh, uh, Springbank option is the one that we're going to be pursuing. That decision was made some time ago. Um, so uh, at that point, the project was transferred from uh, environment and parks to transportation, and our job is is to build the project, um, and uh, and we're proceeding to do that, um, and uh, we believe that it is uh, the best project and offers the best uh, flood protection opportunity for for Calgary. Uh, okay. Um- I think there's a lot of people that are unclear necessarily on the process, but I want to ask you this question first of all, because there's a poll that's out today, um, and it is commissioned by the Don't Damn Springbank people. So, I mean, maybe maybe my question's a bit leading, but do you feel that the poll itself is misleading based on the questions that were asked? I haven't seen the questions, and, and, I, and I never really comment on a poll unless I've seen the methodology and, and how the questions were, were asked. Um, so, um, obviously, it's a, this, is a, this is a group of... of comprised mainly of the landowners um, uh, who are affected by the concerns. Right. Well, well, their concerns, I mean, their concerns seem injected into the questions, but I mean, it talks about how there's going to be forced sale of of private land, uh, that there's vulnerability for other communities like like Bragg Creek and and Redwood Meadows when it comes to to flooding. So uh, how how were those issues factored into your consideration? Well, um, you know, we're prepared to negotiate with the landowners uh, mm-hmm. and offer them fair value for their land. Um, there's no question about that. Um, so uh, that we've we've now signed uh, access agreements with all of the landowners um, uh, so that we can conduct our environmental impact assessment, which has to be conducted over four seasons. So that was very important for us to do this spring so that we didn't miss a season. Um, and we've successfully done that. So the uh, the work on the environmental impact assessment is uh, is starting, um, and we're having some negotiations with some landowners um, uh, about acquiring their land. We have not yet um, entered into negotiations with the uh, with the main group of uh, uh, landowners that are represented in the Don't Dam Springbank group. Um, but we are doing um, appraisals on the land so that we have a good sense of what the values are. What were the shortcomings with the, the McLean Creek proposal? Well, um, we don't know ultimately what the cost will be until we've concluded um, you know, the negotiations for the land and so mm-hmm. on. But there are some really important environmental um, uh, uh, reasons why McLean Creek is a is a bad idea. So it's quite a bit more ecologically sensitive. Um, there's a number of species at risk in the area. 
there's a grizzly bear migration through there. There's harlequin ducks. Uh, it is a bull trout spawning area, and there's wolverine as well. Um, it would uh, that dam would permanently alter the fish habitat um, and interfere with the spawning of the trout. So those are important considerations as well. All right, uh, Brian Mason, we thank you for your time this morning. My pleasure. All right, thank take you. care. That is uh, Brian Mason. He's the Minister of Infrastructure and Transportation, answering questions for us about uh, Bill 16, about the southwest portion of the Ring Road, and about the flood mitigation project uh, that will go ahead and those that won't. Well, we certainly know where the government's going on all three of these things. Bill 16 lays it out pretty plainly. As he said, the southwest uh, Ring Road, it's going to happen. Uh, and it is happening, and uh, regarding flood mitigation, that they looked at all the options, felt Springbank was the one that made the most sense, and uh, so that's where they're going. So let's take a break, and we can get your reaction to uh, any and all uh, of of those declarations. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Welcome back. 974-8255 is our telephone number. Uh, that's the number uh, this fella dialed. Steve, uh, welcome to the program. I have always had just the one question. Why is a Class 4 such a better license than a Class 5? I would love someone to do a show on that because I still have to stop at the red light. I still have to merge correctly. What exactly is a Class 4 doing better yeah, no, than a Class 5? That's a great it's question. It's also the a same four-wheel vehicle. four-wheel passenger vehicle. Yeah, two-axle mm-hmm. vehicle. Uh, the only difference is that it allows you to accept money for driving people around. Or is it just a way for driving companies to make money? Well, here's what it, it just- says it, uh, on the transportation website. The holder of a class four driver's license may operate any of the following. Any motor vehicle or combination of vehicles that you, you can drive with a class five. A bus that has a seating capacity of not more than 24. Or you can drive an ambulance or a taxi. So, so. yeah, I mean... But yeah, but I mean, is is it a significant difference? It's it is more expensive uh, to to get one of those. I I think there are some uh, in terms of uh, the the medical reports that you have to produce. I think you have to do that more frequently. Uh, That's my understanding. Uh, But uh, yeah, in terms of what the specific differences are, in terms of what you have to demonstrate knowledge of, it's not like you have to go out and do uh, you know dangerous obstacle courses behind the wheel. I, I. but it does set the bar higher. Be, <laughs> I just like the idea of a dangerous obstacle. I pictured a flaming hoop the second yeah, you said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, you, you passed. Good job, kid. Um, I do wonder, though, in response to uh, Brian Mason and Bill 16, I would like to hear from, from Uber again on this program. When we had Uber come by with the puppies... Oh, that's um, great. Right. It wasn't that fantastic. Um, and to hear them say, look, you know, we just we hope that we can open the dialogue again. We hope that we can get back to the table. Uh, but I, I want to know what's what's so different about the uh, police background check that uh, the province has put into place than what I mean, right. n- not 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 what's different about it, but why it's uh, too high a bar, too high a threshold for Uber uh, to want to well, meet in order to do business. Companies here. like Uber, they're. they're you, they don't want to discourage people who would be inclined to be one of the and and you know, it's the bulk of their drivers who just do it part time, uh, ten hours or less a week. If you think, hey, you know, I I have a car, I, I drive, I tend to be someone who stays home on Friday nights and Saturday nights. I wouldn't mind going out for you know four hours Friday night, four hours Saturday night, driving some folks around, making a little dough. That that, that might be worth my time. 
And then to come back and say, well, okay, but you got to, you know, put up a couple hundred dollars up front for this, and then you got to go and you got to do this and get this license, right. and then you got to do this more expensive uh, background check, and you got to do these regular, and then you might just say, well, yeah, I'd rather not. Let's go back to the phones here. Uh, I don't know who she is. Hi, Art. How you doing? I'm not bad. How are you guys? <laughs> good. Sorry to interrupt good. you there. Yeah, good. Good. My question is, about a month ago or whenever this came out for the government said that seniors or people over a certain age or everybody was not going to get notification about registration, driver license. Yeah, and it's, license. Not, it's not just seniors, everybody, yeah. Yeah, everybody. Mm-hmm. So I had phoned and ta- tried to talk to Mr. Mason, but he wasn't in his office, and I got his assistant. Yeah. And I said, I'm a senior, and I said, I don't have a computer. I don't have the Internet. Are you guys going to supply me with this so I can get to do it? And she says, you know what, sir? You should get with the times. And as far as I'm concerned, when the government tells me to get with the times, they talk about bullies, told, they're number one on the list. Who told you to get, get with the times? That was a response you got from whom? That was a response I got from her, his assistant in Edmonton. Okay. Uh, I'll take your word for it. Right, thanks very much. Uh, I don't know if he needs to get with the times necessarily, but at the same time, I mean... Uh, uh, there's a lot of people that complain about the amount of money that NDP governments waste, and they've seemed to have found an efficiency here. So uh, I, I wouldn't tell Art to get with the times, but I would suggest that, um, hey, they found an efficiency. Maybe we should uh, pat them on the back a little bit and then just jot a little note in your calendar uh, that says, hey, now's the time to go down to the registry and uh, and renew. Because the the one thing about that uh, that letter, I get one every December, and I have for the past nine years that I've lived in this province. So I get with the times every December. Let's uh, squeeze in Bruce's phone call here. Hey, Bruce. Yeah, it's uh, good after, good morning. I uh, I agree with the new legislation regarding uh, the Class 4 license. Okay. Because you were saying, oh, well, you're, you're driving the same vehicle. No, uh, well, technically speaking, you are, but the Class 4 shows that you have been, or you have to take uh, uh, another road test to uh, show that you're, because you have to be more proficient right. than a normal Class 5, and you have to take a written exam. To show because uh, there are certain regulations with regards to uh, you know you know what, to- Bruce sorry, I don't mean yeah. to, I don't mean to cut in on you here Bruce but you, you've made the point uh, quite well I think and we're just running short on time but here, here's my issue with it and you're correct like there it's more stringent qualification and there's a, a medical assessment that's attached to it. I'm just telling you that I've, I've never been in a taxi uh, being driven by somebody with a class four license where I've thought to myself what a completely radically different driving experience this is than when I'm with my friends other than well, to say this guy's a far worse driver than every class five driver that I've ever been in a car with. Well, I, I disagree with you. I, I'm a school bus driver. I have to have well, a class two because it's so, because you oh, are really? now commercial. When I, you're just driving your own vehicle, you are just doing private. But when you are taking the public, you're commercial and uh, you should have to have a commercial license. All right. Good call, Bruce. Thanks very much. Okay. Yeah. Class two is a, a professional license. Yes. But obviously class four allows you to drive a a uh, smaller bus or a taxi, which is also commercial. I mean, when you're at, when you're in a cab, don't you just look at that driver in awe and think to yourself, "My God, this Amazing. guy's perfection!" It's like Jeff Gordon. Oh yeah, escorting me around. <laughs> way better. I was going to go with Paul <laughs> Newman, but <laughs> all right, we got a break for the eleven thirty news. Uh, back with more right after this. Welcome back, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk seven seventy. Let's talk about birds. It's that time of year when the male bird and the female bird. Oh, no, no. Find one another. No, 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 no. Rob, it's, 
Oh, it is actually that time of year, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. Sorry. Yeah, it is. I, I, like, I kind of miss uh, being down down by Eau Claire and go through Prince's Island Park, and there's all the baby ducks and the baby geese. It's great. That's wonderful. Every time of year, we used to have robins uh, nesting in our yard each year, and uh, I'd always be excited. You know, I'd check on them, can you see the babies yet? And um, yeah, you know, so they're, they're, I know our friend Dave Taylor's an avid, avid uh, bird watcher. Mm hmm. Very much so. Yeah, this uh, like obsessively so. <laughs> well, he does like to travel with a camera and shoot the birds uh, with his camera. And this uh, this conversation's got me thinking about some fried chicken for dinner tonight. Oh, but that's dear. just the way I operate. Well, look, I mean, there there are certain birds that are protected for various reasons, and we have a Migratory Birds Act in Alberta that that lays all of that out. Now, there's an interesting situation affecting a guy. I think this is a uh, in Edgemont, right? Yeah. Um, where a, a northern flicker, a female northern flicker, managed to, to make a hole basically in the side of the guy's house, made its way into the attic, and has apparently decided to nest there. Uh, now, this individual, I, I think recognizing that he didn't want to mess with the bird too much, but wasn't sure that he wanted uh, the nest in his attic, uh, he, he kind of sprayed some water at it, uh, made a fake crow out of paper to maybe try to scare it away, Nothing even blew a whistle. Nothing seemed to work. So then uh, he went to the Humane Society to see if they could help him out. And that's when he learned that, well, actually, sir, you can't do anything uh, because of the kind of bird this is and the kind of rules that now apply under the Migratory Birds Convention Act. If it were autumn and this bird were bothering you, that would be one thing. But it's nesting and the law comes into effect. All right. So we want to explore this law a little bit and the reasons behind it. And Rob and I were brainstorming and saying, if there's somebody who wrote like a book about birds in Alberta, well, maybe that would be a good person to talk to. And we found a guy who wrote a book called Birds of Alberta. His name is Chris Vischer, and he joins us now. Chris, thanks for being here. Hey, good morning, Roger and Rob. Nice to be with you. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Tell us about the northern flicker, at least from the pictures. It looks like a nice little bird. Yeah, it's a great little bird. We have them in Calgary uh, year-round. Fairly common bird in Calgary. It's a type of woodpecker, a uh, fairly colorful woodpecker. And as most woodpeckers um, are wont to do, they build uh, their nests in trees most of the time. Obviously not in the situation with Mr. Parker. And the other thing that is very noteworthy of northern flickers is they, well, they're kind of like the Ringo star of birds. They don't sing for a living, but they drum for attention. So they, um, in our neighborhoods, uh, usually make a little bit of racket, drumming on the loose side of houses or uh, the tin on chimneys or this sort of thing. All right. Uh, and you can identify this bird. Obviously, he's got that woodpecker beak, right? But what is he? He's kind of gray with some, uh, some speckles and I think like a red tail area or yellow tail. What has he got? Exactly, yeah. The, um, without getting into too much detail, the ones we have in Calgary have um, red underneath their wings and tails, which is kind of the western subspecies of the northern flicker up in Edmonton. And further to the east, that red is actually replaced by yellow. So we do kind of have the easternmost version of these red shafted flickers in Calgary, sharp little bill on them and a nice spotted polka dot breast on them. When they fly away from you, they'll show a little bit of white rump on uh, white patch from their rump. So a little tricky to identify because oftentimes they're hanging around on our lawns eating um, ants and stuff. So people don't normally think of them as woodpeckers because they're a little bit more terrestrial than a lot of other woodpeckers that are always seen on trees. Right. But I do want to point out they're really easy to identify up close when they're pecking a hole in the side of your house. I have a picture, Rob, on my phone, which I will show you if you'd like to see. 
Well, okay, but Chris, I mean, explain this to me then. If, if, he's, if they're common, as you say, in Calgary, wh- why are they protected? Well, um, there is a piece of federal legislation, not provincial legislation, although there is some provincial legislation as, as well. But the Federal Migratory Bird Convention Act uh, does a whole bunch of things, including uh, issues, fines when ducks land on tailing ponds and when ducks uh, die in lakes as a result of toxic spills. That's kind of the the bigger aspects of that piece of legislation. But we're not talking about that section. We're talking about a section, and I'll quote from it. Um, it prohibits the killing, capturing, injuring, taking, or disturbing of migratory birds, or the damaging, destroying, removing, or disturbing of nests. So clearly, you can't kill the migratory birds, or you can't damage or disturb their nests. And unfortunately, Mr. Parker appears to have an active nest in his house. So what would the penalties be, though, under this? Well, you know? uh, frankly, um, you know, there are very rarely, if ever, any private citizens that are ever fined uh, by this sort of thing. Um, the biggest fines that are ever issued, of course, uh, uh, involving industrial partners, typically um, with that other section of the legislation where there is toxic substances that end up in the air or on lakes. And those fines can mount to several hundred thousand dollars. In terms of um, active nests being destroyed, there are very, very few fines um, that are ever issued in terms of private citizens. And the only one that immediately comes to mind, there was a case um, in New Brunswick where um, heron nests, you know, those big crane-like birds that stand oh, yeah. two, four feet tall. Um, one of their colonies was destroyed, and I believe the company that did that uh, was issued about a $60,000 fine. Mm-hmm. But again, to stress the situation, private citizens are rarely ever uh, fined for, for contravening this act. Right. I know you're not, you know, saying that to encourage that uh, uh, this particular individual do as he pleases uh, with his own property. I mean, there's something to be said about kind of helping this bird uh, get through the nesting season, but... Uh, what is the danger like in, in, well, first of all, let me ask you this. What's the nuisance that, uh, that this individual is in for having these birds nesting in his attic? Well, certainly probably the biggest racket, uh, if they're already in the attic and I mean, I, I would have not seen this site, but what a flicker would require in a typical situation, a, a, a woodpecker will excavate a cavity. So they need a chamber, a small enclosed chamber. Um, you know, about the size of a, a pop can, really. So that's really what they're looking for. Now, if this woodpecker drilled through the side of a house, um, it's in an attic, and an attic is much bigger than the size of a pop can. So presuming that he has found, or he and she, woodpecker family, has found a small chamber, um, they will be, of course, laying eggs, and then the chicks will eventually hatch. And then you know, probably the nuisance would begin then because the chicks would start begging for food and they can be quite vocal in, you know, about six weeks' time, presuming that there are active eggs already being laid. And is there a risk, though, that once they've they found that as a, as a nesting spot, that they would, that this would be an ongoing issue each year for him? I don't think so, guys. Um, when you walk through the... Um, the River Valley here in Calgary, and you pass all those big cottonwood trees, right? They're just literally studded with all sorts of holes. Have a look, you know, every time, anytime you go to Inglewood or Fish Creek or these sort of places. So one of the things that's required in the courtship of all woodpeckers, but wood, northern woodpeckers, northern flickers in particular, is the construction of a yearly nest. 
you know, basically the male and female woodpeckers bond over building houses. It's just completely the opposite of me and my wife. When we're, you know, doing renovations, things aren't going well. But for woodpeckers, man, this is a big thing for their relationship. So they require the construction of a nest every year to validate their courtship and their bond. So if there's already a construction going on in uh, Mr. Parker's house, it's unlikely that they'll occupy that same place next year. That's why they're called, uh, I don't know if you know this, Rob, the Brian Baumler of birds. <laughs> Should have gotten Bob Vila, maybe? Okay. Uh, so, uh, Chris, what about uh, other, uh, other birds using these uh, woodpeckers' nests? Does that happen? Well, it certainly does. Again, if we go back to um, our, our example of along the Bow or Fish Creek, these sort of places in Calgary, you will see numerous secondary nesters, they call them. So basically people that, people, um, birds that occupy these abandoned woodpecker nests. And there's a whole bunch of them from, you know, the, the wonderful bluebirds to starlings to chickadees to all these sort of birds that have the inability owing to having a small and weak bill. Um, to excavate their own nest, they secondarily use the woodpecker. So it's kind of a nice little story of a cycle of life going on with woodpeckers. They're the primary excavators, and then all these other birds go in and occupy them later. You know, and I wonder, too, and I mean, I, I think some people might now start to wonder if they have a nest in their yard, whether it's the kind of bird that might fall under this, whether they're, they should be doing anything. And I also wonder, too, I mean, if, you know, if Mr. Parker had a cat, it'd be one thing if Mr. Parker said, well, I'll leave these birds alone to do their thing. I mean, cats... Cats can be jerks. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, the cat might have other ideas, and I guess it'd be hard to hold him accountable for, for something like that. Well, exactly. Yeah, certainly if a cat decided to do something, although we do have a cat bylaw, but that only applies to cats roaming off of yeah, exactly. um, your own property. And I'm not touching the cat issue because that um, gets <laughs> far more future inferior yeah. than just woodpeckers. Um, but this act, this federal act, does cover most of the birds, even though it's called migratory birds, and they just have to call it something. It involves birds that aren't necessarily migrants all the time. Uh, basically, it doesn't cover, however, things like crows, magpies, and ravens, and blackbirds, and things like pigeons, and house sparrows, those sort of uh, birds that are often considered nuisance birds in, uh, in urban areas mm-hmm. like Calgary uh, are not covered by that particular act. Yeah, but like if a farmer had like an owl nesting in his barn or something. Well, uh, that does happen, and um, without getting into too much detail, owls and raptors are not covered again by this no, legislation. It's covered by an Alberta-based legislation, but essentially they're kind of protected during the nesting season as well under the same sort of provisions as the federal legislation. So okay. it's all kind of a little complex, but most owls, or sorry, most birds in the province, while they're nesting, have some form of protection. All right. Well, Chris, thanks for uh, the rundown. We appreciate that. Uh, my pleasure, Roger and Rob. Anytime. All right. Take care. That's right. uh, Chris Fisher, ecologist, author of the book of birds, uh, excuse me, Birds of Alberta. That's the name of the book. All right. So the cat that killed the baby robins in, in my yard was guilty of, I guess, roaming the neighborhood and killing baby mm. birds in there now. Yeah. Rob, Rob, Robin fantasied. And got away with him. Well, did you collect evidence? I think the crown botched that one, to be honest with you. I don't think there was a very good... Uh, uh, and let's face it, you were trying to railroad that cat anyway. You'd been watching him for a while. Uh, I did, you know, every day and I would see that, that cat out there. Well, not every day, but I would see it out there. And I would, you know, it was trying to find a way to get up to that nest. And uh-huh. I'd try to shoot it with the hose and just throw rocks at it. It's like, damn you, cat. And it kept coming back. And then one day I came home and there were just the, the nest was on the ground and the baby robins just scattered. It was... It's a, a gruesome crime scene, and uh, 
Well, I'm just saying, Rob, based on the evidence, <sighs> based on this testimony, I think that if you hadn't illegally surveilled the cat and antagonized it, I think uh, <laughs> a different story, a different ending. It will take a pause right now. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. See, somebody accurately points out, Rob, on our text message board that, that the individual called the SPCA and that was the mistake. Or the Humane Society. The Humane Society, rather. Thank you. Uh, yeah, if he just goes up into the attic and gets the nest out, then no be, no one would know. I wonder what it's set up is like because that might be easier said than done. Maybe it's part of the problem. And I think maybe that's why he hoped to scare it away. If it's kind of, you know, tucked away in a sort of a, an inaccessible nook or cranny. <laughs> Have you ever been in your attic in your house? Uh, no. I, I've been in my attic in my house. I'm never going back up there again. <laughs> There's roofing yeah. nails from one. Oh, yeah. It's just nothing but, but danger up there. In fact, I would put my head through the little cubby hole and say to the birds, you're taking your life into your own hands up here, man. You have no idea. And it's itchy, it. too. You're going to be really itchy for the rest of your week. Yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't know what the, the bird found up there, but, um, I, you know, it is surprising. Uh, in a couple of texts here, this one says, is there really no exception when the nest is inside your house? Well, this one says, I think the law should be set aside when the nest is, is inside your house. Apparently not. And I, so, yeah, I think that's what's surprising about this story. It's like, wait a second, it's in his house and he can't do anything about it? But, you know, if it's in your house or your barn or your garage or in your tree, I guess it's all technically your property. But why is one different from the other? I mean, if, you know, if it flew in, if you left your be- bedroom window open one night and it was right there on, uh, on your pillow, maybe you could move it. I don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> You, you, you uh, I mean, we heard uh, uh, Chris Fisher several times in that conversation say that, like, I mean, the, the feds aren't going to come down on you if you remove one of these nests from your attic. It's really more designed to make sure that industry isn't uh, uh, affecting these migratory birds and, and right. their, you know, particularly their nests uh, in nesting season. Um, and I mean, you brought up even the question, Rob, about like a farmer who has an owl or something like that nesting in his barn. Uh, that would be, again, like a raptor, and it would be a different uh, uh, provincial law that this sort of thing falls under. But you can at least see the merit there. First of all, the ra- the, uh, uh, the raptor, in this case the owl, isn't uh, a nuisance to you in your home. He's nesting in your barn, and he's giving you a little bit of a benefit there, right, keeping some of the mice in check on, some, mm-hmm. uh, on the nightly hunts. Whereas this uh, particular fellow, Dave Parker, is just up for, uh, I think, a couple of months of squawking coming out of his attic. What I recommend he does is get himself a snake. <laughs> I might do it. You know, here's, the other thing too, and I know that there were times in the past when we you know, had a fireplace in, in our previous house and there would be times when, I don't know if birds were actually in the chimney or they were just right around the top of the chimney and it would echo through, but it would sound like there was one in there. And my wife who just, you know, has kind of the bird phobia would just freak out, right? And just the thought, just yeah. the, the mere thought of a soot covered bird bursting out into our living room just sent her over the edge. Uh, and I do, you know, a situation like that, if we had a bird in our attic, I, uh, I don't know if she could take it. <laughs> I don't know. What about exemptions for people who, you know, saw the movie, the birds as a kid and just can't handle it. <laughs> those Hitchcockian fears. Uh, we'll be right back after this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on news talk, seven seventy. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge weekday, starting at nine thirty AM on news talk, seven seventy Calgary.